literary heroes. Yeah, that's always that's the tricky question, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. There's, there's, there's loads. Yeah. actually. That, I just named loads of white guys there. I'm aware yeah, yeah. of that fact. <laughs> Ted Hughes, he's another white guy. I like <laughs> Sylvia Plath. Yeah. She's white, but she's a woman. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not going to say I'm into James Baldwin, but yeah, but 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 I am. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds totally tokenistic to suddenly think. Well, yeah. oh, I've got to name someone who's not white. Yeah, no, especially since you brought it up. Yeah, no. <laughs> if you wouldn't have said that bit, you'd been fine. Just fucking kill this podcast, haven't I? <laughs> okay. Hello, my name is Rob Cutforth, and this is the end of all things. I am coming to you today. Well, I was going to be coming to you today from the secret Salford Park behind Salford University, but uh, I couldn't find a parking spot, and I've spent the last hour or so driving around Salford in the dark, accidentally driving past that that Morrissey Smith's boys' home thing, which I've never been able to find before, uh, which was quite exciting, and I thought, ooh, maybe I'll record from here. Wouldn't that be interesting? All the Manchester people, Manchester files that listen to this would be quite interested in it. But it was dark and, you know, it's Salford. So I didn't. I I was a coward and I ran away. I ran away home to my stuffy work office. Luckily, my wife is, uh, ironically, not ironically, watching uh, Bridget Jones' Diary 3 with her girlfriends. Is that sexist to say that? Her, Her mates. Uh, so it's me, you, some Haribo, and a glass of scotch. Instead of recording in the lovely, fragrant park on a hot summer's evening, I'm at home in this stuffy office, and I can't even open a window because when the wind is blowing the wrong way, as it is now, the air over Ermston smells of a million human shits. There's some kind of sewer thing happening, but and it's regular, so it's not just there's not some kind of overflow or something. It's just... Every now and again, it just smells like shit in this place, which is depressing. I can't even eat the bloody Haribo either because of the crinkly package, and I can't have chewing sounds. So I get to just sit here and look at the bag of Haribo. Did I even mention that I bought a bag of Haribo, or if I just if I just brought that up now? It doesn't matter. Who cares? You might think I was trying to record in Salford after doing some work in my Islington Mills studio, and you'd be half right uh, I was indeed going to the studio, but it's not even mine anymore because I had to give it up. Well, I didn't have to. I just did because the sound just was crap and it always smelled of weed in that place and young people. That's not the real answer. That's not the real truth. That that was a funny joke and it, not even that funny. The sound was crap and basically I couldn't get anybody to come to Salford. I didn't try all that hard. I, it was one of those things where I just knew that if I asked people to walk across the river into Salford, they'd just say, no, why don't we just sit in a pub instead and record here in the center of Manchester, which is where most of the podcasts happen. So yeah, the podcast is homeless again. Oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to need a public or a, a permanent space or not. I've probably done my last recording in that park now that I think about it, which is a bit depressing. Not just because I shall no longer have a reason to go over to that side of the Irwell anymore, but because it's September and outdoor recordings are probably soon going to come to an end anyway, as the awful five-month frigid English piss-down happens. Um, well, maybe it won't. 
maybe uh, maybe there's no more winter. You know, it, this is the hottest summer I think I've had since I've lived here in the last 10 years. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is our new reality. Maybe there won't be a winter. There will. But how many more will there be? You know, I was going to talk a bit about what's going on politically because it's the, the, this country is going to absolute hell. It's hard to even know where to begin. But I don't. I'm not going to because uh, Ben and I actually talk talk about it at uh, some length. So I'm just going to leave. Oh, God. Owen Smith. Anyway, I hate that guy so much. Um, I had a really fun errand to run last week when uh, former podcast guest and MA supervisor Nick Royal spotted a copy of my self-published book on the top shelf of the Oldham Street Oxfam. I suppose when he first told me that my book was there, I thought it was a, it was funny, really. I thought, ah, oh, you know, I feel like a proper author now. My book's in a used bookshop. But that cool feeling, you know, fucked off really quick when he told me it was a personalized copy. And not just a personalized copy, but personalized to a person who came to the book, the actual book launch. Oxfam obviously put it on the top shelf because the person it was addressed to had the same name as the person the book is dedicated to. So the sick fuckers must have thought it was a result of a divorce or something. It was not only on the top shelf, but it had its own stand and it was separated from all the rest of the books. All the books, like you name it. Stephen King was underneath it, about four or five copies smushed together, mine on its own, on its own plinth because of the really embarrassing personalized bit at the start. I even put like a kiss, like a, two kisses on it. By the way, it wasn't to, it wasn't my wife's copy. It, I should just clarify that right away. She still got hers, I think, I hope. Um, this was just the person that shared her name. And to be honest, I wasn't going to out her, the person that gave the book away. But, oh well, if you know my wife's name, you know, you've now figured out who gave the book away. But it, it's not, oh, you know what, this is complicated now. Because if you know my wife's name, and you know another person that I know with that same name, it wasn't her. It was another one that you don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> God, I, I think I'm just going to say the name. It wasn't Kate Feld, okay? And it wasn't my wife, who is also a Kate. It was a different Kate. Yeah, now I've really outed that person. I, who cares? If you're going to, by the way, if you go to a person's book launch, and even if the book is shit, which mine probably is, let's be honest, if you if you don't want to read it and you're going to give it away, just put it in the bin. Don't humiliate the the author. And if you're gonna if you do want to humiliate the author, or if you don't mind humiliating them, you want to give this book to an Oxfam. Maybe get on the train and go to an Oxfam that isn't a stone's throw from the author's house. And not only that, but don't do it with a book that sold fuck all copies because a it will probably get back to the author somehow, and b the author will be able to figure out who the fuck you are. So yeah. Um, as if that wasn't bad enough, Oxfam printed off the Amazon page for my novel because that has the information on it and reviews and stuff. Because clearly nobody's going to ever have heard of this book or me. So it printed that off to give them an idea of what the book is about and stuff. 
But on the same page, it says there were two more used copies that had been given back to friggin' Amazon. Oh, and, and <laughs> with the uh, description, mint condition, unread. Uh, isn't life great? So yeah, I, I had to go to Oxfam and buy back my own book for six pounds as well. A pound more than what I sold it for. <laughs> but to be fair, the one that I bought from Oxfam that was given back, it also wasn't read. So in a strange way, I feel like that's a good thing. The spine wasn't even cracked. So it just seems like, you know, she was doing me a favor by buying the book, but then, you know, not really doing me much a favor by dropping it off at Oxfam. Yeah, self-publishing, man. Yeesh. If an agent tells you to make some big changes to your book and resubmit, do that. Don't think, oh, those agents don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to be like Hugh Howie or that Fifty Shades lady and sell millions of copies. It doesn't happen. Your self-publishing sucks. And I know there's going to be people that have self-published who are listening to this. I'm sure yours is good. Yours is probably an amazing book. I doubt it, but it might be. Uh, Self-publishing for me was an absolute nightmare, and I would not recommend it. Anyway, I am going to keep this copy as a reminder, uh, just in case, you know, the podcast goes sick, or if I sell a million copies of my current novel, lol. I'm just going to put it, give it its own stand like an Oxfam and put it up at the top of my own bookshelf and open it to the personalized bit so I can see that every day. And if I'm feeling too good about myself, I can read that and just go settle down, Billy Butt, Big Bollocks. Who do you think you are? I do speak in this podcast to someone who actually can write. His name is Ben Myers. And uh, this interview was recorded about a month ago, actually maybe two months ago, before my August break. So if we, I've just edited it, and I don't remember us making any kind of date references in it. But if we do, just add a month to whatever those date references are. If we say something happens in a week, it's, it happens in a month in a week. You know, I've got a life and things happen and um, outside of this podcast. And sometimes stuff doesn't go out for a while. But the interview is great anyway. We met in a coffee shop in the town of Todd Morden, which, like everything in rural England, sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. And uh, yes, I know, I'm not pronouncing it right. I don't care. The day I spoke to Ben was a more typical British summer day, grey and pissing down. Uh, so we take refuge in a slightly... Tr- <laughs> slightly trendy? Is there, can something be slightly trendy? Uh, it's a trendy coffee shop. It had artisan bread and about 1,500 flavors of puck of tea. Uh, it had more than Eighth Day on Oxford Road. I'd never seen that before. So everything, even the uh, green chai. The podcast itself is actually interrupted at one point by some twat talking on his mobile while buying cinnamon tea. I suppose calling him a twat is a bit strong. And I don't know how offensive that word is to you. But especially when I don't even know the guy. But I, I mean, come on, he's on his mobile besides two people who are clearly recording an interview he even looked at us and then buying cinnamon tea. You know, you do the maths. <laughs> yes, and I said maths. That was just for you, England. The coffee shop uh, was actually pretty great. I have no real problem with middle-class hipster stuff. I I try to pretend I do, but 
sometimes it's just good. And I can't really take the piss out of hipster stuff because my hands at this very minute are stained with turmeric as we got actual turmeric root as a nice surprise in my veg box. Yeah, Abel and Cole and Puckatees. That's how I roll. We talk at length in this podcast about the British class system. And that seems to be a favorite topic of writers in the North, I suppose. Or maybe writers everywhere. And me, really, because I, I was just about to say, I still don't know what class I am. But like I said, I've got turmeric stained hands and I've got green chai puckatee in my cupboard. But my dad sold used cars. So I don't know. You tell me what class I am. Do we, does it even count when you're from a different country that's not England, that doesn't really care about class? I don't know. I still don't know. I'm not going to talk too much about it now because we talk about it loads in the podcast. This must be the third podcast where the working class stories compilation that's currently swirling around the literary uh, Twitter sphere has come up. Although we do talk about class in this for ages, we don't spend a lot of time actually talking about the collection itself. If you are interested in contributing a working class story to it, I believe it's being put together by Dead Ink Publishers, um, which, yes, are also getting another bloody plug on this podcast. They've come up almost every single time. They should send me a gift, like a box of scotch or something as a thank you. But that would probably bankrupt them. Uh, the small small publishers have it tough, man. Uh, but they are pr- somehow producing kick-ass books. Ben's publishing through a small independent, Blue Moose. And um, they're doing some really cool stuff. It's just there's just no money in it. I don't even know why they do it. I'm talking to a small publisher in a future podcast, I think next week, Dodo Inc. So I will definitely ask them why small publishers do what they do. But the reason we talk about Blue Moose is because they publish not only Ben's book, but my favorite, one of my favorite books by Socrates Adams, Everything's Fine. Since this podcast was recorded last summer, I've actually scored an interview with the man who came up with the Working Class Story Collection in the first place, uh, Nikesh Shukla. I'm talking to him just before his appearance at the Manchester Literature Festival. And I'm also going to talk to Kit DeWall, who set up a creative writing fellowship to help improve working class representation in the arts. So if you're sick of hearing about working class writing on this podcast, tough shit. Because there's going to be loads. I've been properly bitten on the ass because of my own lack of research again. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that on at least two occasions, I think, I've spoken about how much I enjoyed Lionel Shriver's talk at Hey on Why last year. And that I thought she seemed like a really, really fun, if a bit spiky author. So when this current, I don't know if you've read the stuff that's happening or the thing that she's just recently said, whatever. This, when this hoo-ha happened last week about her talking about uh, the fact that privileged whiteies should be allowed to pr- appropriate other people's cultures and that, that it's okay and there's, you know, people should relax, it's not a big deal. I thought, hmm, that seems a bit out of character for her until my mate showed me the other things she's written for The Guardian. Two gems included... One called, uh, if you want more accurate polls, stop shaming shy Tories. And another article called, don't be hysterical about sex crimes. So she's not exactly someone that I would ordinarily like. 
but yeah, she's saying some pretty stupid things at the moment. I was going to promise to do more research on people before I talk about them, but that's probably not going to happen. So let me just say, you know, Lionel Shriver is well and truly in, truly in my bad books. And all that stuff I said before in the other podcast, just just pretend it never happened. It was a really good interview at Hay, but, you know, she's clearly a dick. But having said that, I am a bit sad that I missed out on tickets to her thing at the Manchester Literature Festival because if nothing else, the Q&A session at the end will be massively cringeworthy in a kind of delightful way. God, it is hot in here. I really wish I was at that park. Ordinarily, I would have cycled as well and parking wouldn't have been an issue. But I had to drive today because... In addition to having to buy an embarrassing copy of my own book from Oxfam, close down my Insington Mill studio and fucking get turmeric juice on my hands, my plantar fasciitis is acting up. So walking and cycling is a bit painful at the moment. Getting old sucks. Plantar fasciitis. Is there a more... I'm definitely middle class. is, Is there a more middle class condition than that? It's gotta be second only to fucking gout. In addition to all the class talk, Ben and I obviously chat about his current book, Turning Blue, as well as his career as a music journalist, uh, in particular, his writing about the, oh, what's his name? The guy that died in the, uh, oh God, I've even forgotten the name of the band. Let me Google it. Oh, fuck, what is, I can't even Google it because I can't even think. Uh, Yes, Manic Street Preachers, that's it. What is the man's name? I don't know what's going on with my computer. I don't know if you can hear that. It's going absolutely mental. Max are so annoying. Richie Edwards, that's it. In addition to all the talk about class, Ben and I obviously chat about his current book, Turning Blue, as well as his career as a music journalist. In particular, the book that he wrote about Richie Edwards, the missing and presumed dead member of the Manic Street Preachers. And the fact that his book was fictionalized, a fictionalized account of what happened to Richie. I think I've got that right. Um, I've not read it, obviously. But um, then we talk about uh, books like The Damned United and David Peace, things that talk about real people but make fictionalized accounts. And the, you know the backlash that that can have. So that's really interesting stuff. He also talks about the differences between getting published by large publications and small publications. And as usual, I ask him loads of questions about money. Ben is one of the few people on the planet who actually makes a living from writing and writing only. But but despite being a prolific and award-winning novelist and renowned music journal, he, spoiler alert, isn't rich. It'd be really interesting if it wasn't me, if it wasn't happening to the industry in which I'm interested in pursuing, in the pursuit that I'm the pursuit that I'm pursuing. What the fuck am I talking about? Anyway, we talk about that. Here's the interview. Listen. Where are you from? Uh, Canada. Okay. Whereabouts? Yeah. Do you know where Calgary is? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mainly from the Winter Olympics. Yeah, well, that's good. It's, uh, it's 
usually it's yeah. If anybody that knows, it's because of some kind of cowboy yeah. or. I thought world. it was Canada. It's a good job I didn't do the typical idiot thing of saying where in the states, states are you from. Yeah. Well, Why'd you say the Canadian part? Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, from listening to the podcast, I thought it's Canada. Well, well that's good because I can't really tell myself. So when I find someone who can, I don't. I never blame. I'm not one of those Canadian guys that gets really pissed off and it's like. Small man syndrome, but it is quite a cultural difference between Canada and the states. Yeah, I've never been to Canada, but I've spent a lot of time in the states. And, yeah, and, and and I've met plenty of Canadians, and I yeah. relatives who live there in Ontario. Yeah, well, I think people that live in the North East United States are very similar to us. Yeah, uh, like in polit- like politically, and just in uh, the way we live, sort of New England and yeah. Up. Yeah. yeah, 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 and like Minnesota, especially yeah. that should be a province, really. Yeah, that's more Canadian than it is yeah. American. But yeah, yeah, it's good. You're not from here, from Durham. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of not really. I know there's a there's a cricket thing there. There's a cricket ground there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Durham's about. I thought it was in Scotland, but it's not. Obviously, is yeah. it, it's north of here though, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's in Newcastle. It's, mm. it's, it's northeast. Yeah. It's um, about. 15 miles south of Newcastle right and it's a historic yeah medieval uh, city it's a city because it's got a cathedral so it qualifies yeah. as a city but it's really like a big town yeah uh, it's beautiful actually and it's a university town see you don't sound Geordie to me no I'm not Is the, but it's close yeah <laughs> but yeah you don't even Most sound close to Geordie I would just say you sound more Lancashire than really well yeah. I've been around here a few I mean we're right on the Lancashire border here yeah like a mile that way, or in Lancashire. So, right. are we in Yorkshire right now? We're in West Yorkshire. Oh, right. Okay, but we're on the border. Yeah. And historically, there's there was great rivalry between West Yorkshire and Lancashire. So, well, well, Yorkshire and Lancashire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. War of the Roses so I can't go that in that direction because I'll be crossing the border in Lancashire, and anything <laughs> yeah. could happen. I might get my throat slit. But it's all right because yeah. I'm not from Yorkshire. So yeah, but, yeah. D- we're in West Yorkshire, and then there's North Yorkshire above here, and yeah. then that bleeds into County Durham, right. which is quite a big county, and there's a lot of countryside. You just sounded Geordie then. Yeah. It's a countryside. Yeah, well, yeah I okay. slip into it, yeah. especially <laughs> when I'm up there or with my family. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, my, my brother and sister both live in Newcastle, and they're a lot more, my brother certainly is a lot more Geordie sounding. Right. Uh, yeah, Durham's university town. It's, yeah. it's where all the... Uh, people who are the, the really posh wealthy people that's who kind are, of who what, are, the, what the idea I had about it well not Durham isn't posh but it's the it's the people who are too thick to get into Oxford and Cambridge right. but <laughs> have got the money yeah it, this sounds, that sounds terrible actually because <laughs> it's a good university and you obviously you've got the intelligent but there's, mm. there's so much money amongst the students in Durham yeah and it's a real divide because Durham traditionally is a just beyond the city, it's all pit villages or ex-pit villages, right. which is sort of towards where I grew up, a few yeah. miles out. So it's mining country. And well, is it is it kind of it used to be? It used to so be. So have all those people been kind of pushed out? Then? Well, no, they're still there. But like I, I remember the miners' strike in the eighties and yeah. saw the tail end of the mining industry. And those village entire villages were structured around coal mining so yeah. were, the houses were built there and people were looked after schools for the kids and uh, swimming baths and mm-hmm. saunas and oh, right. working men's clubs yeah. so there's entire communities based around that industry and then mm-hmm. the industry started failing from 50s, 60s onwards mm-hmm. 
and then Margaret Thatcher went to war with miners in the 80s and won. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those pits closed. The villages are still there and the people are still there, yeah. but a lot of them have just been left. There's nothing's filled that void, really. Yeah. You either go and work in a call centre or there's a lot of unemployment. Right. And a lot of drugs came in um, to some of the villages. I mean, some of them are great and really nice places and it's yeah. nice countryside. So you've got those villages around the city. So yeah. If you go in on a on a Friday or Saturday night, you've got a lot of people in, in the city drinking and you've got the students who yeah. are wealthy and have sports cars. Oh, and man. This is, this is strange. And then you've got a beautiful cathedral and castle and yeah. buildings going back centuries. Wow. So which side of the fence were your folks on? Well, I'm from the... Uh, the working so side I'm, or the far side? Well, I'm from somewhere <laughs> in between, like literally geographically, mm-hmm. because I'm from the suburbs. Yeah. My parents were academic. Well, my parents went to, both went to university and were teachers. Right. Retired. But my ancestors were coal miners. Yeah. And shopkeepers. Uh, tailors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's that. I mean, class is such an odd thing in, mm-hmm. in Britain. It's weird. In England. I, I still can't get my head around that. I it. can't either. I mean, I, I, I mean, it happened the other day that there's some anthologies happening for working class writers and someone. Uh, yeah. I, I just had it. Sorry, go on. You, 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 know, just, yeah. you spoke to Nikesh. I saw yeah. you tweet. Yeah, yeah, I just spoke to Kate Feld, who's with the okay. Manchester Literature Festival. Yeah, I and they're Kate. doing something for that. Yeah, and I just had to talk with her, literally about that. It's such a well. Small I met Kate a few weeks ago. Yeah, and then I've known Nikesh a while, but saw him yesterday because yeah. he's in Hebden Bridge. Well, I was because I'm pretty tight with the Dead Ink guys mm-hmm. as well. Aren't they publishing? That's the yeah. one. So that that I I was on Twitter that day when that whole thing kind of happened yeah. which was quite interesting which is so if people are listening and don't know what we're talking about it's, it's are we recording this we are yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just checking uh, yeah it's an anthology for working class writers because working class writers are underrepresented in publishing what well, is it I, I don't know see the, I had this I, I don't know if I just want to talk too much about this because I had this exact conversation with Kate um, my question was how do you define, define working class? Like, how do you, you say, oh, you know, my, my parents were... Like, how working class do you have to be to submit? Well, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. It's... I mean... Do you, it, it, do you... Is it just so much as self-identifying as working class? No, I don't think it is, because there's so many factors to take into consideration, but the assum- I always get the assumption is I'm working class, especially when I lived in... I lived in London for 12 years. Mm. For the first couple of years, people couldn't even understand me. Yeah, yeah. Seeing I was Welsh, Irish, Scottish. Right. <laughs> but, Welcome yeah, to my world. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. But, um, yeah, so I was talking to Nikesh yesterday, and he mentioned, he said, oh, are you going to do something for the anthology? Mm. I said, well, I would, but, you know, I used to holiday in France and eat hummus. <laughs> so I, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not working class. I'm sorry, but, but I get it all the time. And, yeah. and most, like, reviews of yeah. my books, because a lot of the stuff I write about is... Mm-hmm be considered working class people or marginalised people or yeah. different communities which aren't necessarily written about gypsies mm-hmm. or you know agricultural areas um, yeah but so I, I said in the cash I, I don't think I'll qualify he's like but, but, but you're northern yeah, I was like, yeah exactly, but believe yeah. it or not not everyone in the north is, is working class, class. yeah <laughs> so I don't know I, if you broke it down I would be lower middle class yeah uh, my parents moved up through, they were the first people in you know in their families to be sent to university. Their parents yeah. were, and that was in the early sixties. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't sure if it was middle class stories, 
like the characters have to be middle class or, or I just say middle class, working class. Yeah. Or if the writers had to be. <clears throat> I'd like to write something about uh, being mistaken for working class. Yeah. Because people, I, I, I've like my my name's been attached to things, and this is probably quite recently. Like, I've seen people writing articles. <clears throat> In the Guardian or whatever, yeah, yeah, and it's like why on, you know, why hero. On, yeah, <laughs> exactly that. And my wife, Adele, mm. who was a writer uh, and is working class, but undeniably, like her dad was a farmer and yeah. mother was a hairdresser, and Adele is the first in her family to go to university. Mm-hmm. She just laughs at me because there'll, there'll be some articles somewhere about you know there are a few working class voices that are just breaking through people like. So and so, so and so, and Ben Myers. Yeah. Like, you're not fucking working class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. But it's funny, I think. I, I'm I, not going to pretend to be either. Yeah. But I think one of the things I quite like about. I like it when people are proud of like a working class heritage. Whereas I, I'm not sure that's the case so much anymore. I think that years ago it, it seemed like people were more proud of it, whereas now they're just kind of, they just kind of shuffle that under the rug. But I don't know. I don't know. It's tricky because working class. <clears throat> Working class people have been so demonised, particularly in the last five years. Yeah. I mean, I don't well, need to get into to, yeah, yeah. Probably don't want to get into politics massively mm-hmm. because we'll be going all day. But yeah, I, I suspect we're on the same side as well, so yeah. we'll, we'll make for a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> two people agreeing about yeah. stuff, which is most of the conversations I have with people. I, yeah. I, I've been trying to break out of my bubble recently because most people I know share similar opinions. Yeah. Uh, and like I write for, as a journalist, I write for, I do bits and pieces for the Guardian and New Statesman and the, you know, the left-wing publications. But I'm trying to break out of the bubble and have other conversations with other people. And yeah, but it's too extreme at the moment. Like, you, I don't know. I, as soon as someone says, "Oh, you know, I, I think Britain should be out of Europe," I just go, "You're a dick!" And immediately, I, I, I just can't. Yeah, well, I'm trying to avoid that because, I I, because there's people I know who voted to leave Europe who are friends some like you know a a writer a writer friend of mine very passionately believed in uh, and he's you know he's quite a well known writer I'm not going to throw him under the bus well actually no he's written about it so it doesn't really matter but yeah yeah, he's he's well into leaving Europe and he's an intelligent guy and and like another one of my oldest friends who's like politically engaged and is you know working class He's yeah. voted to leave, but mm. it's nuanced, and you know, a, a lot of blame has been uh, apportioned to the northeast, actually, to Newcastle and well, particularly well, Sunderland. I was going to say, New, Newcastle voted to stay in, just yeah. yeah. But so a lot of, even though uh, as many people in the southeast, middle class mm-hmm. southeast people, voted to leave Europe, the yeah. blame has been put at, at, the, yeah. at the feet of working class people in the northeast who've been let down yeah. by lots of governments. And there's no spent. I mean, you go to Sunderland, and people are great, and there's all sorts of great cultural things, writing scenes, music mm-hmm. scenes, uh, but they're being fucked over. So, uh, yeah. but a lot of it's a protest. It's like, well, Europe's done nothing for us. Yeah. That's what some people think, and it, you know, they've got Crazy that right. Though. So, yeah. yeah. But it just think it's the people who benefit most from Europe who voted to go out. It seems. Possibly, yeah. Like the Welsh, especially. Like yeah. the amount of money, and in the south coast as well. Yeah. Like uh, Cornwall. Yeah. Gets sh- got shitloads of money from. Yeah, from every, everyone's had money from Europe. I yeah. Mean, there's all. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll not get into it. I know. I, I, we, we said we weren't going to. How but it's quite. A, it's quite. A, 
it's depressing in some ways, but it's exciting and interesting because it's yeah. If I was looking at this from if I didn't live here, I'd be find it really interesting. Yeah. But the fact that I, hang on, this is happening to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I live in this country and it, it's affecting. And you know, I work at a university. It's going to affect you know our how we do business really because we have so many connections with European universities that'll just be cut. Academia, yeah. and this is one of the things that has, hasn't really been covered enough in the media, mm. I don't think. It's no. The, the, the level of uh, withdrawal of funds and partnerships in academia. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be crazy. Yeah, we'll see. Let's see right. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Let's talk about your book. Okay. <laughs> Before we get too <laughs> I'd rather talk derailed. about something else. But yeah. Okay, well, we don't <laughs> no, have to. No, no, no. Um, yeah. That's even more miserable than politics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty, pretty dark. Well, it, I mean, yeah... Yeah, what is it? it what is, is it about like the bells or the dales? Oh, oh or talking the, about turning blue. Yeah, yeah. turning blue. Yeah, uh, that can make such dark story because I, I kind of Jen Ashworth introduced me yeah. to you or got made me aware of you, and she her book is you know based in mm-hmm. the bells and her yeah. and I, I know Tom, her mate Tom Fletcher and he's based up there. Okay, and uh, his books are quite dark as well. Yeah, so did, is it possible to write a happy book? Based in the, I tried to write a happy book last year as a challenge to myself, and, mm. I, and, I, and it didn't get very far. Yeah. I, I am going to pick it up again. Um, well, I'm into landscapes and the countryside. Mm-hmm. That's clear. Um, I don't know. There's a bit, there's been a real resurgence in writing about nature and landscape in recent years, non non fiction wise, and. Um, some great writers out there and some great books but I think they're only telling half the story right um, you know as I mentioned like my wife's sort of her her father and all his family are from agri- agricultural mm-hmm. stock farming stock so I hear lots of stories passed down mm-hmm. from there and they're not all ha- happy stories you yeah. know there's, there's lots of like people losing limbs in farm machinery mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, hardship and mm. this has gone back decades but it still exists today yeah. so I'm, I'm possibly trying to reflect some of that mm-hmm. in my writing because I don't think I think I think with a lot of the nature books at the moment and I don't want to be too critical because mm. I know people who write these books and they're great but mm-hmm. a lot of the books I think are written for people who live in cities who sit on idealised t- yeah well yeah romanticising but also you're sitting on the tube at rush hour in central London and you need escape and it, and I did the same when I lived in yeah. London I spent a lot of time reading rural fiction and poetry mm-hmm. and non-fiction and it provides some sort of escape yep. uh, but it's harder to get that escape if you're reading a really bleak fictional novel about necrophilia yeah. pig farmers and stuff yeah <laughs> but um, yeah I, I, like most writers I tried to write various books in the past and mm. um I, I, it was only when I started writing about the countryside because yeah. um, as I said I'm from the suburbs really but I spent a lot of time climbing mountains as a kid my parents would take us to the Lake District a lot yeah. another middle class I, just gonna, I, I was like do I say that? Or? yeah, no, yeah. No, well it is yeah. but I would go up like Helvellyn which is like the you know, second highest mountain mm-hmm. when I was five and uh, we were dragged up there basically mm-hmm. but it instilled uh, a love of landscape I suppose yeah. and, and also the Yorkshire Dales and, yeah. and when I lived in uh, London, I would sort of get on the train for two or three hours to the nearest patch of green space for, yeah. a, for a few hours respite. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The, the darkness exists in the landscape, but I think landscape reflects that. And I think ro- writing about landscape is a way of kind of 
tapping into something beyond the present day and the current era. Mm -hmm. When you're alone on a on a moor, you you could you could be in any century, and that sort of evokes. I mean, round to where I live, just a few miles away, mm -hmm. go up onto the the moors and in the little woodlands, there's all sorts of abandoned houses which have fallen down. And our the, the house we lived in before was built in 1641. Yes, yeah. so, so as soon as you move in somewhere like that, you're just surrounded by. Uh, history, history, yeah. and inspiration, and stories, and you know there mm. might be little things scratched into yeah. the wall, and even just walking around, I'll come across stones and boulders which have got markings going back hundreds of years. Jesus, and um, that all—I mean, *Turn and Blue* is a contemporary novel, but my last mm. book, *Beastings*, was set in the past, yeah. and that's more tapped into the old Cumbrian ways. Yeah. Um, no one is entirely sure when, when the book is set. Every reader who I've spoken to has asked me when, and I've been mm -hmm. quite sort of vague about mm -hmm. it because it doesn't really matter yep. to me. Writing that book, I wanted to write something that could have been that someone who lives in the outback of Australia might relate to, or mm -hmm. someone in Alaska. I, I wanted it about space, isolation, isolation, and survival, but mainly about this sort of hardship of the, lands the landscape. Yep. So I think. Certainly, the past couple of books, the yeah. main character has been the landscape. It's also been the they've also have center. Well, I shouldn't say center around, but have characters in them who had quite difficult childhoods as well. I think. It's yeah. Been, certainly, yeah. turning blue. Yeah. To the least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Beasting did as well. Like yeah. she was. Yeah, that was about. She was an orphan. Yeah, it's about a girl whose sort of past was a little bit of a question mark. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of this stuff has been inspired by things like the composite stories of things I've picked up on like so Beastings I read a press cutting from a story from maybe 130 years ago mm -hmm. in Sunderland actually about a girl who was mute deaf mute or just perceived at the time to be uh, you know simple was the phrase mm -hmm. they would use then uh, and she left she she was in some hostel um, uh, and she was employed to look after a, a baby in a house. Oh, God. And she disappeared. Mm. She ran off. Um, she went on the run with the child. Disappeared for three months mm -hmm. over a really harsh winter and resurfaced sort of 40 miles away in Middlesbrough or Hartlepool or somewhere uh, in a really bad way. And the, the child was in a really bad way and it ended badly. And I, yeah. I just thought, you know, no one knew what, what this girl had been up to for three or four months all they yeah. knew was that she had a terrible back uh, you know upbringing yeah so i thought you know i could, I could write something around that but mm -hmm. i decided to set it elsewhere and i set it in the summer rather than the winter and i thought i wanted to write about the lake district mm -hmm. and so yeah her, the, the, the character in beastings her story her difficult childhood is based in the different on the mm -hmm. difficult childhood of a real character it was a press cutting that was five sentences long yeah turned into a book with other yeah. characters and so it's because that basing your fiction on real uh, events or people that's kind of something that works its way through too because you had the the guy from the uh, manic street preachers yeah, yeah. Um, that was a fictionalized account of his yeah that so was even more so that was yeah that was a uh, non-fiction was it non-fiction non-fiction novel is how I would oh, describe it okay so it's it's but wasn't it what the story was wasn't was made up though wasn't it? Well, no, it's uh, well. I mean, the main like it got, the guy disappeared, but there's two narratives in that book, right, okay. and one is about his life, 
Mm-hmm. It, one, one narrative takes place from basically birth until the day that we know he disappeared, yeah. which was in um, 1995. So it covers his life and the rise of his childhood and his mm-hmm. university years and the rise of Manic Street Preachers. Yep. And then the other narrative is purely fictional and um, speculative, really. Yeah. So it it was heavily researched about his life, but then I went off on a bit of a narrative trajectory. Yeah. And that's when I really got into landscape writing, actually, because I decided to have him go off into the, the Welsh hills. Yeah. And there was various sightings mm-hmm. of him during that time, which I sort of incorporated into the story. But yeah, yeah. it's a novel. But it, so it had the... <coughs> Pardon me, like the plot points, basically. Yeah. And you just connected the dots then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and it was inspired by certain writers. I mean, I got a lot of shit for that book at the mm. time. I got a very. Was it unauthorized? Like, did the. Yeah, it was. The, an, I mean, the I, weren't on they, board weren't it in, all. they weren't involved. No, wow. I ran it. I kind of ran it by them. And I, I, th- there's various real people in the book who, who I know, who I'm friends with or have worked with in the music yeah. business, who I spoke to and were happy to kind of give me information. And I ran it by his family, and his, I, got, I had some connection with their management. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a letter to his parents, and I wrote a letter to the band, explaining my intentions, mm-hmm. really. And those, the intentions were, were sort of... I was coming at it from a literary perspective. Yeah. A lot of people just saw me at that point as a music journalist who mm-hmm. was trying to cash in. Yep. I mean, you don't really... If you want to cash in on a subject you don't write a book because no. people don't buy books yeah yeah <laughs> there's other ways of cashing in sort of thing yeah. but it, it wasn't I, I wrote a letter and explained that I was into writers like Gordon Byrne and David mm-hmm. Peace and um, it's horribly pretentious but you know a lot of Shakespeare's works were built on uh, were based on real events figures real events you know monarchs and Antony and Cleopatra mm-hmm. and Henry V and but they were like you know written well after the yeah. fact yeah whereas this is pretty fresh oh still. it's 20 yeah 20 years yeah 20 years now but um, yeah. yeah so it's a very tricky subject to write about mm, it's a big brave. risk and I, well I don't know whether I would do it now because yeah. it, I, I was quite um, I just sort of hoped that people would see it as I, I was right I was hoping to write in this sort of um, tradition of European lit- literature like people like um uh, Dostoevsky or mm-hmm. uh, Hampson or Jean Genet who wrote a lot or, or maybe uh, Camus or Sartre mm-hmm. wow well I, I mean no, I wasn't <laughs> saying I was anything yeah, I like them but, but they, they often wrote about troubled young men yep. who were sort of adrift in their era or yep. existentially troubled by the, the world at large so I mean I, I, I went into the book with that in mind yeah but a lot of readers saw me as some dickhead who, who worked for <laughs> Enemy and Melody Maker and Kerrang yeah. and Music Press. So uh, people either loved it or hated it. Yeah. Um, oh, that's kind of that's good though, isn't it? Yeah, it it's is better good. than it just kind of like floating across yeah. the yeah the scene really. And it got quite a lot of attention. Yeah. I was quite naive about that book, I think. Really? Well, it, you didn't it, think there'd be a yeah. I, I knew there would be yeah. some sort of, but I kind of some sort of trouble. Mm. I, the worst grief I got for it was from it was before it came out actually um, that's the same with David Peace's book yeah like um, the Brian Clough Damned United yeah, yeah. Damned United most people were pissed off about it before yeah. in Nottingham 
That's where he's living. They were pissed off at him before he even came okay, out. Yeah. But once it came out, it was even worse. Yeah. Yeah. He's pretty. I pretty hated around those parts. I think. Well, well, he is. Yeah. Really. Mm. Well, the Damned United was one of the primary influences on Ryan's wonderful book. Yeah, I love it, yeah. and um, I love David Peace's work. Yeah. Although I haven't read a great deal of it, I've met him and I really liked him. And got yeah. on with him, and we had a, like felt we had a lot to talk about, um, but. So, with it, with David Peace, just knowing he exists is... I don't, I don't have to read every book. I just like to pick up his books and have a flick through. And yeah. knowing that he's out there yeah. selling a lot of books, doing something that's very experimental yeah. and brave. He did get sued from... The Johnny, club family. Uh, it was actually Johnny Giles who was one oh, of the other players. Oh, right. the, yeah. One of the Leeds players sued him. Yeah, because he's, he, he, he's portrayed as a hard-drinking, heavy-smoking... Yeah. Ball busting yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that was the truth. So he, oh, right. because okay. the, the Clough family couldn't sue because Brian Clough is dead. Oh right. And you can't um, libel the dead. Oh right. But Johnny Giles was very much alive. So right. and, uh, and this is all what I've heard second hand. So yeah. I heard that he sued Faber and Faber mm-hmm. or, or David Peace, and I think he won some some undisclosed case. Gosh. Yeah. But um, so yeah, I'm quite into books that take yeah. those risks. Yeah, yeah. Um, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Yeah. You've read that's that. probably the famous, the, the first yeah, one, really, that isn't it? Started yeah. it really, because mm-hmm. because um, my background's journalism, but mm-hmm. my my real love's fiction. I've sort of trying to combine. Well, certainly in in Richard, yeah, and yeah. In, maybe in some future projects as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it that you're writing now? You kind of touched on it in the texts back and forth yeah well I've just submitted uh, a new book this week mm-hmm. um, which is coming out in May 2017 it's slightly flexible it might not be May mm-hmm. certainly next year probably yep. by the summertime. Um, it's called The Gallows Pole mm-hmm. um, it's again it's a fact based novel um, mm-hmm. it's, but it's different for me because it's there's a historic angle mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. You might be able to tell me this. What? What? what how, how do you? De- how do you define a historic? I can't. I don't, I don't think it's possible. I can't. I. I don't know what it is. I don't know what a historical novel is, because it's fictionalized. It's, it's fiction. But I don't know. I. Well, can't, I don't think. I think the lines between anything are blurred. Like between like the, there's creative nonfiction as well, which is yeah. something which are true stories but jazzed up. And I should know this because I Kate Feld is a good friend of mine and she's got a night in Manchester that celebrates it. Yeah, we celebrates discussed it. it with her actually. Yeah. They, the, the one and she's discussed it on this podcast and I still don't. Yeah. And I've seen people do it. but I, and So I thought, well, I'll try it. And I wrote a story. And she said, well, no, that's, that's fiction. And I was like, well, it did sort of happen to me, but, you know, I don't uh, know. That's creative non-fiction, I see as essays, really. Yeah. yeah. Where you can kind of let loose a bit with yeah. your... Uh, but I don't know. Historical novel seems to be novels about old stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> stuff that's it. That's, that's, that's literally the I only thing, f- isn't it? Yeah. So the Gallows Pole will probably be billed as a historic novel because it's set in the 18th century, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's about a gang of sort of uh, weavers and hill farmers who mm-hmm. lived in this valley, mm-hmm. Calderdale. Yeah. M- uh, Mythamroyd, where I, which is the town where I oh, live. Is that how you say it? Mythamroyd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, what they did was they were very poor, and mm-hmm. all the land was owned by rich landowners, mm-hmm. people who would own half of Yorkshire, and maybe didn't even live here. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so they decided to kind of fight back and under the guidance or leadership of one guy called David Hartley, or was called King David Hartley, right. he got them organised and they would get coins from all the local businesses and they would clip the edges off mm-hmm. with shears and they would take the clippings, melt them down and with moulds they would make uh, new coins mm-hmm. so you could take 100 coins and end up with 125 coins. Oh, right. Um, and they did it on a massive scale and flooded the valley with new money mm-hmm. and got very wealthy very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it was actually the biggest forgery in Britain at that point. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but then a local sort of taxman excise officer got wind of what they were doing because the local economy was totally derailed. Yeah. Um, like if you print money now, you know, quantitative easing, mm-hmm. it can have a, some adverse effects. Um, yeah. He got wind of it and decided to bring them down. Um, they got wind of him, so they killed him. Mm-hmm. And then um, a lot of local local people were involved. Um, yeah. Anyone who sort of suggested that they were going to kind of grass up the coiners, they yep. called the Cragfield yeah. coiners, would be beaten and tortured. Gosh. Um, the famous incident is that one guy was mouthing off in the local pub about, I know who did this, I know who killed the tax man. So the pub just turned on mass basically and got this guy and put him in the fire. They put his head in the fireplace, put hot coals down his trousers, and just burnt him to death and beat him, and then went back to their drink. And this is so the book's going to be a comedy then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, laugh out loud, <laughs> stocking yeah. filler, fun for all the family at Christmas. Christmas, yeah. Um, but it's true. I mean, so my get out clause is yeah, right, horrible, dark stuff. But yeah. this stuff happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this. And, and, and actually, it's a book about rich and poor, and mm-hmm. you know, it goes back to class again. Mm-hmm. And, and it's known around Calderdale, the story, a little bit, but beyond the area. You mm-hmm. can go 10 miles from here, and people won't have heard of the coiners. Mm-hmm. And it's a story as big or as significant as Robin Hood is to mm-hmm. English oh, history yeah, and mythology. Quite, yeah. Or maybe Dick Turpin, if you know the story of him. No. That's, that's another well-known English story about a guy who's a highwayman who would rob anyone passing by and he went on the run uh, he became a folklore figure mm-hmm. represented or maybe Ned Kelly in Australia mm-hmm. um, so the coiners is a, is a huge story I think in terms mm-hmm. of what they did it was quite short-lived and some of them ended up getting hanged mm-hmm. uh, hence the title yeah the gallows pole mm-hmm. that's a bit uh, of a spoiler isn't it well yeah <laughs> And there's a few of the big, big, bigger publishers were reading it and stuff, and one or two said, "Well, you know, we like the book, but we know what happens in the end." Mm. It's like, well, yeah, but we know what happened to the Titanic, but they still made the film. Yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. They? yeah. But anyway, that, don't get me started on okay. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Gallows Pole is also a, a song, a traditional yeah. song in Britain and America. And yeah, Europe. well, I know the Led Zeppelin yeah, version. Yeah, that's the, the the famous one. But mm-hmm. Led Belly did it. Oh, did he? Oh, Dada. Hers is probably the best version, mm. but there's Scandinavian versions, mm. and it's also called the Gallus Pole, and it's also called the Maid Freed from the Gallus Pole. So mm. It's like a song that's developed over hundreds of years. Yeah, it doesn't actually have much relevance to the to this novel, but I decided to. I, I was partly inspired by because the, the song is about coins and money and yeah. death and hanging. Well, the soundtrack's already set free when it becomes a movie well yes <laughs> that's the plan yeah do you uh, did you you just kind of touched on big publishers um, all of your novels have been done with, by small 
publishers, independent publishers. Uh, Is well, that no, by design? Um, well, Richard came out of Picador. Oh, did it? Right, yeah. okay. So I've been on big mm-hmm. and small. Um, well, publishing business is just... Fucked up. Uh, yeah, it's fucked up. Mm. Uh, I've struggled because being on a big publisher has its benefits in terms of distribution and exposure, but it, if the exposure is not handled correctly or is kind of just thrown out there... Basically, I think what my experience with big publishers is you get a lot of smoke blown up your ass. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of people, you go to these um, sort of industry events and you meet all the reps and you mm-hmm. shake everyone's hand and everyone tells you you've written a hit novel mm-hmm. and it's brilliant and they're going to sell this many copies. But I'm quite cynical and having worked in music, I've seen this happen to bands, so I was mm-hmm. fully prepared for it and I just thought, it's not a hit book, it's... Mm-hmm a mid-level book or you know whatever and the book comes out and they send you bottles of champagne to congratulate mm. you and stuff and I just saw through all of that and mm-hmm. um, and actually so my next book which was Pig Iron which I wanted to put out quite quickly after Richard to show that I wasn't just some music journalist mm-hmm. writing to cash in on a, on a, on a tragic yeah. subject big publishers were interested and it, um, it was going to be coming out on Picador mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the other problem with the bigger publishers is, is that staff seem to be on the move all the time so you might have an editor who loves your work and mm-hmm. designs you but then next week they move to another company Yep. so there was, I was in limbo for a bit and then I kind of made contact with Blue Moose Books who live a, a mile from me Yep. and there's this small and I met Kevin Duffy who runs it and he told me he'd remortgage his house to fund this publisher. Gosh. He's fueled primarily by anger. Mm. <laughs> so you guys got along uh, he, brilliantly. He's far more angry, <laughs> angrier than me and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's good to... I, I don't know. I mean, I like working with small publishers, mm. which isn't to say I wouldn't work with big publishers, mm. but there, there are benefits on, on both sides. Yeah. With a with an independent publisher, they've got so much more at stake. Mm-hmm. If they're only putting four books out a year, they've got to make yeah. sure that at least a couple of them sell. Yep. And um, and I think readers are quite loyal to certain small publishers as well. Like that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like it was Blue Moose. Do they do Socrates? Yeah, Adam's yeah. Book? That's one of my favorite favorite books. Well, I I hooked them up. Because, oh, did you? Yeah, I've known Socrates for quite a few years. And everything's look, fine. Is mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, I love that book. Yeah, and uh, I've not read a Modern Family, but I probably should. Okay, well, yeah. it's a Modern Family is just an insane novel. Yeah, everything's fine. I mean, he's the, he's like the funniest person I know. I I've think. never met him. I tried to get him on this thing, but well, he's now lives way down south. Yeah, well, we've only met a few times in person, but he's one of those people who yeah, I've had a lot of contact with over the years, mm. and we just sort of trade stupid one-liners a lot of the yeah. time. And he's hilarious, and he made the film. Have you seen it? Was yeah, it? Are, yeah. Oh, you're talking about Wizard's Way, or are you talking different? Yeah, yeah. Because you interviewed Chris Killen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so yeah, Wizard's Way is a brilliant film. Yeah. But yeah, so um, he'd written Socrates had written a new novel. I think it's Socrates or Socrates. It's Socrat- it's, yeah. he, he says Socrates, so that's what yeah. I'll go with. Um, but yeah, he's funny. He's yeah. hilarious. So I mentioned his book to Kevin at Blue Moose. And this is the other good thing about independent publishers. Like, I bumped into Kevin at the forecourt of the Shell 
Eccles Station the other day, and we had an impromptu meeting yeah. about the gallows pole yeah. and how we're going to market it next Brilliant. year. Until a guy came out from the petrol station and told us that alarms were about to go off because if you don't pay for your petrol within ten oh, right, minutes, yeah. alarm bells ring, <laughs> and then the police the SAS turn up and yeah. shoot you in the face or something. Yeah. So that's a good thing about mm. independent publishers. Yeah. You can you can we relaxed. Can, yeah, and we we can just go for a cup of tea and mm-hmm. sort out six months work of worth of sort of planning and. And do you think that, the, as far as sales are concerned, because both of them kind of get your books into the bookshops, mm-hmm. do you find, is there a big difference in sales when you were with, like, the Picador book or with a smaller uh, publisher? I can't, I can't tell because the Picador book was... Because it's its own there's, thing. There's a was, ready-made yeah. sort of readership there. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, I've heard stories of writers who've signed big publishing deals yeah. and sold a few hundred copies, whereas mine sold quite a bit more you know, mm-hmm. I know of really well known writers like one in particular was mentioned to me recently his last novel sold a thousand copies and this is a very famous British writer and a thousand copies is okay but mm-hmm. you know my books sell more than that yeah. um, on a little publisher and Blue and Moose uh, involved me in the you know they let me work on covers and yeah. I get to I get involved in the whole yeah. process and from a like a strictly selfish, you know, financial point of view, you get a bigger cut of each book as well, don't you? No, do you not? It's no. the same. It's like oh, right, pretty, pretty standard. Yeah, yeah. there's mm-hmm. less money on independent mm-hmm. publishers, definitely. Yeah. I don't know how they stay afloat, to be honest, but I'm I'm glad well, they, they are. Yeah, I, so I I like working with indie publishers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done I've published a couple of short stories with Galley Beggar Press, mm-hmm. who um who I've known for a while since yeah. before they were doing that and. They were great to work with editorially. They, they, their editing skills were brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I'm now at the point where I work with anyone who I'm, I'm, I'm doing stuff with the Blue Moose long term, but yeah. I've got other things on the go. Yeah. So I'll work with anyone who's yeah. interested, really. Yeah. Because the, the latest one's not with Blue Moose either; it's with the Moth. No, or that, yeah, Moth, which is like a, a new imprint doing crime books. Yeah. And that, that's been done. Um, I was talking to a woman called Claire Malcolm, who runs New Writing North. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know that. And Claire's got fingers in my pies mm-hmm. and has been very encouraging to me. Yeah. She happened to mention that she was involved in running this new crime imprint. I said, oh, I've written a crime book. Didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. So the com- it's just like an yeah. organic thing. She's like, well, send it to me. Mm-hmm. This was a year ago. This was August last year. Yeah. And uh, she read it and said, "We really like it. Do you want to do three, three book deal?" And Gosh. I said, well, "I don't know that I can write three because I've got other things happening." So signed a two book deal. Mm-hmm. About six years of work of writing has all landed at the same time. So I've got three books out in a twelve month period. Mm-hmm. One came out two Brilliant. weeks ago. One's coming out in eight months time. Yeah. The sequel to Turning Blues coming out in August 2017. Yeah. So long as I write it. Yeah. I've written a lot of it. Yeah, this is the question I always ask everybody, um, just because I'm always fascinated and I'm. It's the boring podcast question: is is it enough to make a living, like writing alone, like with the, even though you're writing novels and your music press, is that do you have to supplement that or do you, even because I know I've been t- I've yeah. spoken to published like people like yourself who have published several novels and yeah. they still can't get by. Uh, they all have like an academic job or something. Yeah, you can't. I don't make money out of novels, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, I live entirely from writing and have yep. done 
since I was 20 or 21. So, I'm, I'm, so the music press still pays then? Yeah, journalism. Good. So I write, I review albums, I interview bands, mm-hmm. I write. I used to do copywriting for advertising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, if I if I really wanted to, I could I could have gone down the that route. Yeah, and you you can make more in a week writing slogans for say Nike mm-hmm. or Nike, however you say it. <laughs> uh, you can make more. In fact, I've made more in a day or two writing slogans for Nike Nike um, than I have from entire novels in Gosh. terms of royalties. Yeah, my advances are small, which mm-hmm. means you can make royalties quicker but um, yeah. Yeah. But, so I do that and I write festival programs mm-hmm. for music festivals I work for a few record companies so yeah. I write biographies and press releases for bands who I like yeah. uh, and I put out novels mm-hmm. so all of that combined takes me to somewhere below minimum wage yeah it's so, incredible isn't it so yeah I don't make minimum wage so and when times are lean I just mm-hmm. sell Possessions and shit. It's put, crazy, isn't put, it? Put stuff on eBay, uh, but I've been very lucky because I've had a few grants and I've won a few awards. Mm-hmm. So what I haven't made in in royalties or sales, I've made in yeah. um, in prizes yeah. actually. Yeah. So it doesn't keep you up at night worrying about money all the time. It would me. No, uh, it used to. Yeah. I mean, I'm 40 now, and I've yeah. been doing it since I left university. Really, yeah. I don't know any other profession really yeah. uh, what keeps me up at night is the thought of having to get an actual yeah. job because yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see this as a job at all I no. mean writing novels is brilliant I love it yeah. I love writing I don't particularly like a lot of the other stuff that goes with it mm-hmm. what, uh, what keeps me up at night is typing errors in my books or mm-hmm. the fact that the new book people order it on Amazon and after two or three weeks their orders hadn't turned up and oh god uh, things yeah. like that keep yeah, me yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, money I've never had money, so yeah. you know I get by. Yeah, and I eat quite well. So it's funny that like the different kind of class-based things. It's not money-driven a lot of time. Like being working class or middle class or uh, yeah, you know, well, I whatever the top one is. You can't say upper class because that doesn't. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. aristocratic. Yeah, I, I, I could have like I could have pursued journalism entirely and maybe become like an editor of a magazine yeah. but even something. that there's no money in that no, really that's anymore that's fallen apart yeah. I could have maybe ended up editing a magazine in London Yeah. Uh, but there's people I know who do that and mm-hmm. can barely afford to pay yeah. rent or certainly can't like afford to buy a house Yeah. which is what I've managed to do, managed to do in Yorkshire Brilliant. through various strokes of good luck mm-hmm. like when I lived in London I lived in a squat for four years mm-hmm. so I didn't pay any rent for four years and I was the staff writer at Melody Maker at the time. It's incredible. So I had a full time. How ta- crazy is that? Yeah, just just hearing luck. that come out of your mouth. It's the most depressing. Well, I was 20, 21 and I had more yeah. money than at, at 40. Yeah. I was earning more money. And I was spending <laughs> it all on drink and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, well, you're a writer. Yeah, but, but yeah. And the other thing, I guess, is relating to your question mm. is... Like I don't, I don't drink now. I don't mm-hmm. sort of have any expensive hobbies. Don't do drugs. Mm-hmm. Don't, uh, you know. I, I live quite a frugally. Frugally, when there's no money, I don't spend any. Yeah. You know, hmm. my my money goes on food. Yeah. My overheads are low. Yeah. Because people say to me, "How do you, how do you, like, how are you so productive?" It's like, well, yeah. I just stay in and write. I don't, I don't go to the, you know, if you go to the yeah. pub. 
it's a distraction and you wake up hungover and there's a day gone yeah I just write and uh, it's yeah. like a, a sort of monk like yeah. existence in some ways and yeah. occasionally I'll go out and talk to someone like now mm-hmm. yeah I've been quite sociable recently actually I've met a few of the writers which is like a novelty yeah because you realise that they're as antisocial and yeah, as, yeah, great, as insecure <laughs> if not more so than yeah. you are which is yeah. quite reassuring to know that no one's happy yeah <laughs> Every and it's always great re- yeah. meeting a successful writer who's mm. more miserable than you because yeah. it, it's it's a nice assurance. You think it's even, yeah, it's, even if you make it, you'll still be allowed to be miserable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the other good thing about being on independent publishers. Mm. I'm not forced to do... Uh, like, it sounds... It probably sounds strange to people hearing mm. this, but you see writers and they're on the kind of literary festival circuit mm-hmm. and they might be on the radio and they're doing this and that. Yeah. That doesn't interest me. Like, yeah. It's just a distraction. People spend, like... They might spend 18 months just talking about the book yeah. that, that they started writing four years ago and talking about themselves and yeah. And I'm 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 quite I'm I'm sort of motivated by anxiety. <laughs> My anxiety <laughs> is why I write to yeah. make sense of the world. Yeah. But it doesn't mean I want to get up on stage and perform e- extracts from my book. Yeah. That's double anxiety yeah, for me. Yeah. I hate it. Well, you must have in your mind, in the, or in the back somewhere, like the dream of the bestseller, even like accidentally. Do you not? Is that you did you uh, not even? Well, the stuff I write's never going to be. I, I, I would write fiction. It could. It could. Well, maybe it? the gallows pole mm. has got. I think it's got potential to be adapted for TV or film. Yeah. And I've had a lot of dalliances with the film industry a lot of people have been in touch and a lot of production companies have shown interest yep. in Big Iron and Bee Stings and mm-hmm. I've spoken to directors and had Brad Pitt his production company got in touch about the Richie Edwards novel Gosh. which was totally ridiculous Yeah, because that was never going to happen No, <laughs> I just imagined a Hollywood imagine a Hollywood like version of one of my books my books yeah. are miserable yeah. northern bleak yeah. uh, windswept yeah. grim, you, like, grim tales with, with just, horrible endings I just can't imagine like Brad Pitt being the star of that windswept well we were joking like who would if they made the story of the Manic Street Preachers who would they get to play Richie Edwards and I was like they'd probably get like Denzel Washington or something <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. <laughs> and set it in LA yeah. so uh yeah. yeah, obviously my my yeah. So I don't know bestsellers. I just mm. I, I would rather put out a book every two or three years and yeah. build up a readership and have a bestseller. All those books combined, to yeah. the equivalent of a bestseller. Yeah, I don't know, maybe in the future. But um, it would be okay. It would be nice to have. A yeah, of course it would yeah, be. But but I do see a lot of stuff that goes along with that. But the thing is, though, I think if you've got that kind of if you, if it did happen. You'd have the power to say no to those things, even if you wanted no, to. Don't no, you? No, well, no, well, yeah, maybe, but I mean, I know of writers who um, who've had big success, uh, who I might have like met or have heard anecdotally, who they're obligated to the publishers to to go to here and why, yeah, and to do. I mean, if like if if Radio Four want you on there, it's hard to say no, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because the publishers is going to despise you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I know, I know writers who are very reluctant to, to do that stuff but feel yeah. like they have to right. they've got the obligation oh you know I've been given this money but because yeah. I haven't been given a great deal of money yeah. um, you've got freedom yeah there's a, there's a man buying 
cinnamon tea next to us there with his phone yeah yeah interesting um i don't know it's uh, people say well why would you write and not want to be rich rich but or not even rich just you know your life easier uh, my great my greatest fear would be being famous right because yeah. it's, it means nothing these days, and no yeah. right, no writers are fa- recognisably famous these days. No. Really, J.K. Rowling could probably walk down yeah. the street here, and you, you might do, you do a double take. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, maybe that's yeah, a bad I example. That, I think she'd be. I think people would know her. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Martin Amos. Well, yeah, I'd recognise him. But, yeah. Uh, but the idea of fame is damn out. I've interviewed lots of famous people, and that's yeah. see through a lot. Yeah. That's literally all I need. Thank you very much. British class system, eh? We've got it all figured out. Ben's book, Turning Blue, is out now. Uh, It's been out for about a month or so, I guess, and is getting great reviews. Let's make him a bestseller, despite himself not wanting to be one. Go and buy it. It's good. And now I've actually got a plug for myself my own my very first plug on this podcast you can actually see me hosting an event a literary event it's called the trapeze new voices day and it's your chance to pitch your novel to uh, trapeze publishing contributing editors trapeze is a division of orion publishing so you know we just finished talking about how great small publishers are and now i'm telling you to come to an event where you can pitch to big publishers no that's how this podcast works man I don't know what I'm talking about. It's going to be a kind of Dragon's Den type of thing, I think. If they are the dragons, the commissioning editors, and you are the one, the entrepreneur, pitching your idea to them, I guess that makes me the awkward, lanky, seriously white, chalky British guy. Evan, whatever his name is. Yeah, that's me, I guess. Only this one will be a total asshole-free space and loads of fun. It's been described to me as Dragon's End, but I'm pretty sure they'll be nice to you. It's on the 8th of October at Waterstones Dean's Gate in Manchester, and it's like a fiver to get in. So why don't you? It'll be fun. And guess what? I'm actually getting paid to be there. Real money for a writing gig. So there, you know, things are happening, man. I only have one promise. Every person who pitches an idea gets published good right yeah it's that probably won't happen in addition to Nikesh Shukla and Kit DeWall I'm also talking to Gregory Normanton about his latest book I think in the middle of October and like I said before talking to Dodo Inc people next week and finally the interview with Stephen McGay will come out finally managed to get together and get that bloody photo that I forgot to take if I ever do interview you Please, please, please remind me to take the photo because I always forget and then I have to figure out some way to... That doesn't matter. It's not your problem, is it? He's up next anyway and the photo, I look so bloated in it and God, the one in Emma Jane Unsworth's photo, I look terrible. I don't know what's going on. got about 6,000 chins. I need to stop having those photos taken after massive gluten binges. And the Garth Greenwell interview is... I think that's happening as well. I don't know if I should be talking about these when they're not 100%. But I don't really care. Like, if, if they decide later that they can't do it or something comes up, then it just doesn't happen. But at the moment, 
Garth Greenwell and all these great, other great writers are coming, and they're going to be on here talking to you. Um, like the Nikesh Shukla gig, Garth Greenwell, I think, is talking to me before his Manchester Lit Fest appearance. And if you see nothing else at the Manchester Literature Festival, go see The Good Immigrant with Nikesh Shukla and the conversation between Garth and Andrew McMillan for his new book. Those will both be great, great, great. Um, Nikesh's book, the, the Good Immigrant, has had all kinds of stuff happening around it on Twitter. And he's been he was on BBC Breakfast. And Riz Ahmed just wrote uh, an article, I think for The Guardian, talking about the problems he has when he goes through airports, despite, you know, being a... I almost said middle class. That's probably not right. But being a quite successful actor, he's been in loads of movies, and he still gets treated like a criminal when he goes through the airport. After that came out, Twitter went pretty crazy, as it always does. And the good immigrant hashtag... I mean, it, it got... I was going to say ugly, but maybe not. I'll talk about... Anyway, I'll ask Nikesh about it when I talk to him. I've still not heard back from the makers of Emma Jane Unsworth's movie about a role. So if you guys are listening, I am ready to be a movie star. So give me a call or just like an email. In fact, Stephen McGay's book is being made into a movie. And if you're the guy that's making that movie, then you can put me in that one. Yeah, you know, I'm not that fussy at this point. That's it. Thanks for listening. Bye.